Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. We've got a fabulous guest for you this week, the author and presenter Emma Dabiri. Firstly, here's some official podcast business. It's a week to go until the Margate Bookie, Kent's fun, friendly literary festival. We have an all-star lineup, including Deborah Levy, Tessa Hadley, Lou Sanders, Andy Osho, Lucy Vine, Yomi Adigoki, Laura Kay, Adam Kay, no relation, I don't think, Grace Dent, Andy Miller and producer Dale, and your good friend me, margatebookie.com for tickets. There are still places available for my creative fiction course, Write Like a Reader, starting on Sunday the 29th of October. It's going to be so much fun. I'll be sharing absolutely everything I know about novel writing, and most importantly, boosting your confidence, being your emotional cheerleader, and showing you how to keep going when you feel frustrated and stuck. If you listen to this podcast, I promise that you're capable of writing a great novel. It's all within you, and I want to help you bring it out. The course is designed to be suitable for writers of all levels, whether you're starting your first book or your hundredth. Email me at creativeconfidenceclinic at gmail.com for information. You can also join me at the Creative Confidence Clinic on Substack. There's plenty of book chat there too. Now, on to today's guest. Emma Dabiri is an Irish author, academic and broadcaster, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. We're here to celebrate her latest book, Disobedient Bodies, published to coincide with the Cult of Beauty exhibition at the Welcome Collection. We talked about E. Nesbitt, political books for beginners, and how we make time to read. So I'd love to start by asking you about your relationship with reading, if you've always been a big reader, and what were the first books that really sparked that for you, and if you had moments of falling out of love and coming back to reading again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I've read for, I would say I've been like deeply committed to books, like since I was seven. I think I like always had books around, but I remember like a real turning point of being seven, maybe eight, I think seven there, and going to Nigeria where my dad is from um, on holiday. And we were there for a month and for some reason, like I have a really big family out there, but like nobody was around, like none of my cousins were around. There was just no one around 
I was staying with my grandparents and there was no one around for me to play with. Um, and I was really, really bored and there was no TV. There was nothing to do. Um, and then I found a copy. I think it had been my dad's when he was a child of like the five children and it like Victorian, like children's uh, children's book. And um, I read that and I was like, just like super, super engrossed in it. And I ended up like having such, such a good holiday because I was just like so into, into that book. And I feel like that was like, yeah, that was like the beginning of an ongoing lifelong love of books. I love that book so much. And my memory of it is that the world that Ian Nesbitt paints, to me, and I've not read it for so long, so I might have got this wrong. Yeah, I haven't read it for years. It felt quite knowing. I thought, and the best children's authors do this, but she was so great at not making you feel like a child. It was very much a sort of a, a universe where children were respected. And I think she's really good at... Um, is that, and this might, because they did a really beautiful TV adaptation as well. And I'm not sure if I'm remembering the book or the telly, but I think the, the children all wish to be as beautiful as the day, which brings us back very nicely to your new book. Um, but they sort of think, oh, you know, people are mean to us and don't treat us well because they don't like the way we look. And if we're all gorgeous, then, you know, the world will be so much easier. And actually what happens is people don't recognise them and they sort of get shooed away from places and it's the beauty they wish for really doesn't open the doors they expect that it will oh my god this is crazy because i do not remember that from the book but that's such a theme of disobedient bodies wow like because that book was so influential on me but i haven't read it like since i was a child i read it again as a child but i've not actually read it as an adult um and i don't i don't remember that wish i don't remember that part of it but it's so interesting that it's like a theme that's very present in the book I just wrote. I was just thinking, as I was saying, that um, it does seem very, very linked. Are there any books, either novels or memoirs or non-fiction books, with themes that you do feel were sort of, you know, gathering when you were thinking about disobedient bodies? So I feel like another book that's been, like, really influential on me is um, a book called Woman, Woman on the Edge of Time, written in the 1970s and it's the author is a Marxist and a feminist it's like it's slightly sci-fi and um like fantastical and this um very put upon Latinx woman um is locked up is you know has a life of like like quite a lot of like abuse and poverty and stuff and she ends up being institutionalized and put in this um like put in an asylum, like it's a really awful place. Um, and then she's having these visions. And so you're never quite sure if she's having these, if if she is actually time traveling or if, if she is like hallucinating, but I think she's time traveling. Um, she goes to this future that's like very, very like technically advanced, but very rooted in like indigenous, um, knowledge. So it's this kind of idea of like like ancient futures. And I feel like a lot of the like themes, a theme that is consistent across the three books I've written now is me like looking at the kind of like ancestral practices of both sides of my um, 
kind of both sides of my heritage to see what can be kind of gleaned from um, pre-colonial or pre-Christian in Ireland, pre-Christian or pre-colonial in Nigeria, um, kind of knowledge systems, kind of like suppressed and oppressed knowledge systems that could kind of help us um, think through creatively or differently the problems that we're currently experiencing. And when I reread Woman on the Edge of Time, again, I felt like I'd forgotten it, but when I reread it a few years ago, I was just like, oh my gosh, there, there are so many like similarities with her, with this kind of idea of like of ancient futures that is like really present in that book. So I think that like was influential. A nonfiction book that has been like very influential on me, I think I probably quote from it in every book I've written, is called um, The Undercommons, um, Fugitive Planning and Black Study, yeah. And it's about this concept of um, fugitivity um, and the authors take it, kind of take the idea, the concept of fugitivity from the very real concrete historical practice of um, uh, enslaved people escaping their plantations, becoming fugitives and trying to get to or to create these free like maroon communities. And so they kind of take the metaphor of fugitivity and talk about kind of like escaping from late stage capitalist kind of neoliberal hellscape that we currently inhabit. And I feel like that book is very is ex- extremely radical and, and complex and kind of mind blowing in its proposals. And I feel that's been very influential on me and also given me the freedom I feel like to be kind of a little bit out there with my ideas. In a way, and you know, please like disagree because I do not want to tell you what your books are about, but in your books and in these books you've mentioned, there's this theme of hope underpinning everything. And I think sometimes I forget when people like you're writing such sort of, you know, brilliant, sharp sort of, you know, nonfiction and it's sort of, you know, holding up a mirror and saying, look, this needs to change and the way we think about this and when we talk about this, we you know we can we can do better. But we can do better is a hopeful message, isn't it? It's not saying it's not just saying, look how dreadful everything is. There's a real motivation to to move not just to escape, to create something positive and new yeah like I actually feel like that whole thing of we need to get uncomfortable like I don't really like subscribe to that because I feel like learning about this stuff is like super liberatory I don't think it should make people certainly the stuff that I'm sharing I don't think should make people uncomfortable I feel like it should inspire people to know that the way things are organized currently are not just like the way things are, the way things have to be. They're not like these foundational truths. They're one, like they're they're the result of one kind of particular vision and set of decisions and choices. There's so many other decisions and choices that exist. And I think like when we, um, when we find concrete examples of people who organized their societies very, very differently, we, we see that they're, they're, are other ways there are other ways of being and I'm really interested in cultures or societies and this is something I write about like a lot in in disobedient bodies that okay so for instance like I'm talking about beauty and how beauty is imagined 
um, through our current lens, through a political system and a social system that is based on principles of individualism and of comp- and of competition and of kind of like survival of the fittest. And what in what ways do those um, do those principles feed into our beauty culture? And obviously, things like envy and jealousy are human emotions, irrespective of what political or social system you live under. However, there are political and social systems that rather than incentivize and encourage our worst tendencies, actually try and mitigate them, you know? So I think thinking about, yeah, these these behaviors are human behaviors, they're always gonna exist, but how could we live in ways where we try and mitigate rather than encourage our worst impulses. That's something I feel like I always saw as a reader growing up in your books was that beauty, especially for um, for women, was a kind of passport. It was almost the only way to travel if you didn't have much of anything else. But also that beauty and who defined that and said what it was and where it could take you. Something that I write about in disobedient bodies is like you know that kind of phenomenon whereby like this idea of like beauty is like a passport um and it's like a passport but like a passport as a second class citizen um and I feel that like beauty is put on this pedestal partially because there's an assumption that people who are perceived as possessing it by extension have love and security and like support and care and protection and all of these things that's often very far from the case so why don't we aspire to like create societies where we all have access to those things rather than where beauty is understood as the as the necessary thing to possess that will give you access to those things when we know that like Many times it will not. Many I have examples in the book of you know people who are there's a consensus that they're beautiful. They're seen as being people who possess beauty, and it is um, something that's actually really put them in the line of fire. And because they're relatively they're women who are relatively powerless in other ways, their beauty hasn't brought about the positive outcomes that one might imagine. That's like one side of the story, but it's the side that we don't hear about as much. So I want. I try and like approach things from a different angle to the kind of received wisdom. I feel like I'm a bit contrary. You know, I think that's a, a great thing to do. And it's always really fascinating. And I think that's why we read and why I read fiction as much as why I read nonfiction is to to see the other point of view. Is it like I just, um, I don't know if you read Yellowface this summer. I haven't, yeah. But- I mean, it, it's a riot. It's a ride. And that protagonist is the worst. Um, but so compellingly awful and so fascinating <laughs> because she absolutely believes her own nonsense. She's the best kind of unreliable narrator in that she's sort of, you know, lying to herself and doesn't really want to admit that. Possibly not a great example in terms of you know, her being sort of contrary and making sort of think things in a useful way. But I think just, you know, that active, it's like muscular empathy when you're seeing from a sort of a 360 position. And um, 
you know, how people come to think the way they think. And even if you don't agree with them as a reader, it's really, really fascinating to be able to see how they got there and why they did that. I feel like we live in quite censorous times, kind of whichever side of the spectrum you are on, like political, like whatever the kind of, whatever your kind of viewpoint is, there's a script that you are not supposed to deviate from. There's a lot of mantras, there's a lot of buzzwords, there's a lot of like dominant narratives that you're expected to reproduce, whichever kind of side of the debate you're on. And I find that really stifling. My my ideas are not always in step with yeah what the script is demanding that I say. But I'm also like never telling anybody like what they should think. I also think we live in like really didactic times where there's a real this is what I think and you must reproduce this same script as well. And I'm like, this is what I think and maybe it's like a slightly different way of looking at well-known or much discussed thing. But I'm not saying that you have to think like that either. I'm just saying here's here's another way of like considering it. So I'm reading the most incredible book at the moment and annoyingly for listeners, it's not out until next year. It is by a writer called Tracy King, Learning to Think. So she, it's about her growing up in the 70s and 80s in Birmingham. Um, her mother ends up joining a, a sort of Christian sect, a strand of Christianity that's kind of imported from America that's sort of not quite a full cult, but cult adjacent. And her father dies in really tragic and mysterious circumstances. And the family sort of falls apart and Tracy is left to kind of to find herself really through books and through also teaching herself how to code with Amstrad computers in the 80s, which is incredible because she reads lots of kind of like very, very Christian books and then lots of quite pulpy books and books about mysticism. And I suppose we call it MBS now. I don't know if they use that in the 70s and 80s, but um, all the books that she was reading, they were very like, well, you know, this is it. This is the truth. This is exactly how things are. Mm-hmm. And she's just encountered the Carl Sagan or Carl Sagan writing about sort of science and the universe for the first time. You know, she's not really read any science writing. She's read writing that purports to be science writing, but is a bit bossy and a bit, a bit mystical. And um, he's the first writer who said in the text, like, well, but maybe I don't know, but maybe I'm wrong. And she said the power of that sentence, someone, you know, that, that she's always believed the authority of books so fully. And to have someone who is obviously very smart and educated, who knows a lot, but is prepared to kind of be ambivalent. Um, I love that in Zadie Smith's essays as well, that, you know, changing my mind. And it feels like a window is being opened in my brain to have someone say, well, I think many things and they don't all marry up and I couldn't mm-hmm. come and confidently tell you anything, but here's my opinion and this might change. Yeah, I love it. And I think the the necessity of that kind of thinking where where we are kind of like uh, politically and socially now is so important where you have to have like, you know, you have to have this certainty on social media. You know, people are just waiting for you to like say something that is like, ideologically unsound or wrong and so people have to take these really immobile inflexible 
static positions, which is like so dangerous. It's bizarre, isn't it? Because nobody <laughs> ever seems to say, well, I don't know. What do you think? No one has ever sort of seems to be interested in saying, I don't have all the information and I'd love to hear your informed opinion. It's all very... It's like attack is the best form of defense seems yeah. to be the vibe. And also you don't want to hear anyone else's opinion because you're trying to like promote yourself, you know? So mm. it's not about dialogue, it's kind of about dominance. Yeah. <laughs> Often. Have there been any books that politically or philosophically you feel that have changed you? Yeah, for sure. I read a lot of like I read a lot of philosophy from doing my PhD. There is a feminist philosopher called Elizabeth Grosh who wrote a book called In the Nick of Time which is about like a a kind of a meditation like on time and on like like futures that had the possibility of being realized but like have haven't been or won't be but like could be I haven't read it I haven't read it for quite a while I do reference her a bit in disobedient bodies as well but um I, I find like a lot of philosophy really just just very expansive and like mind like mind-blowing like I really enjoy I really enjoy Nietzsche as well like um the spoke Zaranastro that book is wicked it's crazy actually because you're like oh my god I can kind of like there's aspects of it like when he's talking about like the last man and stuff it's crazy when you read something you know that's written a hundred or like over a hundred years ago and it feels like also very like prescient and it feels mm. like we're talking about about our our times now I'm just like looking at my book or looking at like one shelf of books I'm trying to think I feel a bit overwhelmed oh this book's incredible um but I read a lot of theory um, because of, I love novels. I love, love, love novel, novels, but I read a lot of theory because of my PhD. Um, but this one, um, Futures of Black Radicalism, that's insanely good. Who's yeah. the author of that one? That's got such a fabulous kind of, I don't know when it was published, but it's got those real sort of like iconic, striking covers. I love the typography of it. <laughs> yes, it's beautiful. Um, it's it's an edited, like... Um, collection of, of essays edited by Guy Teresa Johnson and Alex Lubin. This is well, oh my God, this is like heavy. I'm like sitting in my office, so I don't really have my novels. This is more like my PhD book. So it's quite like theory heavy, but this is like mind blowing. Thousand Plateaus. A Thousand Plateaus, Capitalism and Schizophrenia. Oh, here's a slim, a slim tome. I recommend everyone read this. Um, Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. This is like so good. I mean, that looks like a really, really great jumping off point. Um, how do you kind of timetable your reading for want of a better expression? Because I guess you've got to do so much reading and writing. It's it's your work and it's it's got to be done. But I imagine that takes lots of kind of, you know, discipline and management in terms <laughs> of like when you're studying and yeah, so my PhD is quite languishing at the moment, to be honest. And if I don't submit it in the next month, that's it. Like the thing is, it's written. Um, it's just like it's it exists in like draft form, and I need to like get it into like submission form immediately. And I just don't see how I'm going to have the time to do that in the next month with my book coming out. Um, see, so yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Like I really, I don't want to just 
I mean, like I've learned so much from the process of like doing a PhD for so long. So like in terms of the impact it's had on me outside of getting the doctorate, it's been like profound, but it does also feel like it would be a waste to actually not get the qualification as well. Yeah, I read a lot and I have to not only read, but then I have to like make sense of what I'm reading um, to like do my own writing. So I often... I my my head is pretty full and I find like that I often because I have like all of this like theory and like history in my head and I'm like I have young children and I'm like extremely busy I feel that there are really like basic things that I just don't remember I think like names have really like fallen <laughs> afoul of the lack of um kind of headspace I have I'm so so bad with names and that seems to be like uh yeah I can never remember the names of the books I'm reading as well like I can remember the names but I won't necessarily remember the author's name even though I could like quote from the book so yeah I don't know there's a lot going on I worry about that all the time because sometimes it's harder than ever for me to like find the word for something or you know and I feel like I'm I'm going mad like something's (laughs) broken and I think and I hope it's just because you know, we are all at capacity because yeah. we now have these <laughs> wonderful and terrible devices that just allow us to have everything we need to know instantly. Mm-hmm. We get panicky when our brains don't work the same way and they're not supposed to. And also we just carry more information and there are more people and more ideas and we're exposed to more than we have ever, ever been at any yeah. other point in history, surely, yeah. I hope. Yeah, like definitely. I-, I feel like under siege, like from just like information and like sensation you know it's like it's actually very overwhelming and I think yeah our our phones are a huge part of that or like just even the amount of people that you're like in communication with Mm. is like really like extraordinary I'm sure there's never there's not been a comparable time in our societies and um you know like you're you're out you're doing something and then you look at your phone and you read a message and it's like actually really intense and like you can't just leave it on red but you also like can't get into the headspace to like attend to it properly given like the social situation that you're in and that's happening like also that's happening with work it's like there's no kind of like boundaries yeah everything is boundless the intensity of that information means you can no longer be fully present where you are either um a book i really really loved by a former guest on the podcast um catherine may it's her book the electricity of every living thing i don't Mm -hmm. know if you've read that one where it's sort of about her plan to kind of do a big coastal walk i think it's around devon and cornwall maybe but also that's when she discovers at the at the very end of her thirties that um that she is autistic and about that process of kind of diagnosis and finding that out. And she was saying that maybe a hundred or two hundred years ago she probably would have lived in a village or a very small town. She would have known 50 people at the absolute most she wouldn't have been in situations where there was an overwhelming amount of noise or light you know you wouldn't have the sort of the sensory hell of going into a shopping center and not being able to deal that just wouldn't have come up and she has a theory which I fully subscribe to the way we are kind of all neurodivergent and I now know lots of people are getting diagnosed as adults and is it also because these conditions are kind of 
inhospitable to all and we just didn't have them you know until yeah relatively recently mm-hmm. I think there's so much to be said for that that's so interesting I absolutely love Catherine May's writing I haven't read that book yet but I'm really looking forward to it um yeah I'm pretty like convinced that I'm neurodivergent I actually got like diagnosed as being like hyperactive when I was a kid they just didn't do anything about it though they were just like yeah she's got hyperactivity but yeah like the like the kind of like symptoms in terms of like concentration and like sensory things it seems very relatable to me but I I actually just don't know how to get like the diagnosis like it just seems like the amount of obstacle like it just seems like an impossible thing for me to navigate so <laughs> I'm really really desperate to read I think Shaparak Kulsandi the comedian has just written a book about her ADHD diagnosis mm-hmm. um also I'm absolutely believe I am neurodivergent and like you I don't quite know how or you know where to begin in terms of a, a diagnosis and, and what I'd need from that really but that um having lots of different projects sort of going on and feeling completely overwhelmed by that, but also not really knowing that there could be, you know, another way that it, I don't know about you, but I love knowing that there are many different things I can do and pick up and put down again. Yeah. Like if I'm not doing loads of, I can't just do like one thing. I'll probably, I'd be more likely to kind of be doing nothing. And like, I think I would really struggle to work in like an office or like a corporate environment (laughs) so like being able to dip in and out to a degree of quite different things um I think my mind like responds like quite well to that I definitely have a tendency to take on like too much and it can go like way too far um but I think with management working on different things simultaneously is like the best way for me to work. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We'll be back with Emma soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Tom Lake by Anne Patchett. It's the story of Lara and her journey from acting to cherry farming, as told to her three daughters over lockdown. This is another book that made me feel as though it has lived in my bones for a long time. There's a spirit lifting, lightness and brightness here, but it is still a very muscular and textured story. It's about hope, expectation and all kinds of love. Tom Lake is published by Bloomsbury and out now. Now back to Emma. So are there any books you haven't written yet books that perhaps might surprise us if we think of of you and your books I started something um before I started Disobedient Bodies and then I was like got the commission to write Disobedient Bodies well it wasn't Disobedient Bodies but got the commission to write something about beauty from the Wellcome Trust so even though I do many things simultaneously I was also doing like quite a lot of other stuff so I couldn't um I couldn't maintain uh the other book but now that I've finished this one I'm going to go I'm going to go back to it um yeah I'm writing I'm writing a novel um that is uh like a, a, a satire I don't know that it will surprise people I think like the themes that I'm kind of or the dynamics that I'm looking at I mean I, yeah I don't know if it will surprise people perhaps it will but yeah I'm definitely keen to um to to write I need a break from non-fiction just because I'm sick of like the pressure of having to like be right not as not necessarily right in my opinions but like you know the, the pressure of mm. the material being like the amount of research that goes into them obviously you research a lot for a novel as well but it is also like a different it, it's different it's different to non-fiction I'm looking forward to that kind of creative freedom when I moved from journalism to fiction it really did feel like a gear shift that suddenly and I couldn't quite believe that I was allowed to do it that you can just you know trust your brain it's it's extraordinary and it's really really exhilarating and I think even now I'm still I'm I'm like is this allowed I I just I just make it up are you sure (laughs) yeah that sounds that seems so exciting that's what I want to do (laughs) so which um novelists or fiction writers have kind of inspired you in terms of like voice and tone and are there any novels that have really made you want to do it and want to tell stories? Yeah, for sure. Um, like, I really, really love Toni Morrison. Um, and I feel like that's, like, to a large degree because of, like, the mythic nature of her writing and the way it feels like it is conjuring or um, channeling um in in some of her novels more than others but they're they feel like quite infused by magic and they feel like they're they are channeling like like a spiritual world like a lot of the kind of spiritual world that I like have written about in all of my books like of Yoruba which is like my dad's ethnic group like Yoruba philosophy Yoruba like kind of metaphysics and like spirituality I feel like the kind of like echoes of that really like infusing like Toni Morrison's Toni Morrison's writing so yeah I like like quite gothic and quite like mythical um like magical magical realism Mm. like I love folklore and and mythology so yeah Toni Morrison is there a Toni Morrison novel that 
really especially moved you or that you felt particularly connected with? Song of Solomon, I think, is probably my favourite. And Paradise. I read Paradise when I was, like, a teenager. And I remember being like, this is brilliant, but, like, it's like a woman's book. I was like, when I read this, when I'm like more experienced, when I've lived more, when I'm older, when I've lived more of a life as a woman, I feel like it's going to resonate with me like deep, more deeply. And then I read it again about four years ago and I was just like, oh yeah, like younger me knew. <laughs> like it, it 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 resonated very differently. It's um, so interesting that you knew that again, it goes back to what you were just talking about with ancient futurism, kind of that being that perception of knowing it meant a lot to you then and it was going to mean even more to you yeah I'm really interested in time like in don't touch my hair I have like a chapter I have a chapter on time which I think is probably the chapter that most people have you know asked me about or said that it surprised them but that they enjoyed it um and yeah I'm interested in obviously like in our part of the world we have like chronological linear understandings of time but in many cultures time was perceived as like flowing in like a more cyclical way Mm. and the idea of the past present and future being discreetly separate from each other is interrupted and they're all kind of you know coexisting Mm. I believe that um like if you read quantum physics that actually a lot of those notions of time as not as non-linear actually bear far more relationship to how time does actually operate um so you know people that are are dismissed as primitive because of well multiple things but partially because of the you know their their understandings of time actually are probably more in step with how how time behaves i've really liked oliver burtman's book four thousand weeks just because it took time as a thing we think we can have some sort of control over and something we can manage and something that we've made dull and administrative and something that we're determined to make it serve us and him at the very 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 beginning of saying no there is some mysticism here there is something else there's something bigger like it controls you you know get in line and don't worry about it so much (laughs) And then the relationships, I guess, between like neurodivergency and like time management are interesting as well. I so some this is such a boring thing, but something that um I've thought, oh, that's weird. Like you know when someone says that something's being brought forward or pushed back. Like for example, we started speaking half an hour later, um, mm-hmm. the start. So I guess you could say that was pushed back. But just the way I picture it. I feel like it's being moved forward because I think of the line and I think that it's being oh, yeah. picked up and moved forward. So the idea of something being yeah. pushed back, I mean, that it's going to be sooner even. And that's something that whenever that's whenever cool. someone uses that expression, I really have to stop and think, it's like, oh no, they mean the opposite of what it I think. It feels counterintuitive, right? I never thought of that before. Ages ago when I worked at Bliss Magazine, I remember talking to the receptionist about the hour change and she was saying, well, no, 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 because... You know, because it's like, it's it's spring forward, fall back, isn't it? Because it goes forward in spring and back in the autumn. And she was like, but if you fall, you fall forward. (laughs) So the clocks must be going forward in the autumn and spring back because you'd pull something back before it sprang. Um, (laughs) I was like, I cannot fault your logic. This is 
I can sort of feel, I think I'm having an aneurysm, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> but I think that perhaps comes back to the quantum thing and the cyclical thing, like this idea of trying to make it linear just isn't serving us. It makes no sense. And I suppose a lot like beauty, where, you know, a small group of people have been allowed to set and control a standard and you know, something powerful happens when people start questioning that and disrupting that. Yeah, for sure. But like something that I write about in the book as well is I don't feel that it's like the solution is just to expand the standard. So one of the kind of main arguments of the book is it's not it's not adequate to just include more types of people in what is like actually quite a destructive system rather than inclusion i would advocate for like transformation and i i make the argument in like quite concrete ways like i i try and take pains to actually unpack not just the beauty standards that exist like western beauty standards that exist but actually what how we assess and measure beauty um in this part of the world in terms of how beauty has been understood as operating in in cultures that are very different. So there's like a lot of philosophy in the book. I try and go back. Okay, so I guess my, my kind of starting premise was why does everybody I know, women specifically, like have a degree of self-loathing about their appearance, like irrespective of how they actually look? you know so I'm just like sick of feeling like just that insecurity I'm like where does this insecurity like like come from so people say it's like oh the advertising industry or unrealistic beauty standards and yeah like to a degree but it's something like far far more deeply seated than that so I can't the book goes back to like Plato and ideas about the body that exist in like Greek philosophy how they are further enshrined um through the Cartesian like dualism the binary view of the world that we inherited from like the philosophy of like Rene Descartes and the way in which the body has been imagined as subservient to the mind as as the body and the mind are seen as like an kind of inherently separate the body is like subservient it's like the slimy desires of the flesh and then like the mind is the place of rationality and like intellect and um like spirituality like all of these or or spirituality like spirit over kind of matter the things that are like unembodied are seen as like the superior things and then conveniently um men european men specifically became associated like in western discourse men became associated with the kind of domain of the mind and women became kind of imprisoned in the fleshy confines of the body and we have this like deep-seated actual scorn for the body and the body is read as feminine like in western culture and i feel like a lot of in western discourse and i feel that like a lot of our notions a lot of our notions of beauty are like rooted in these things so i was like how is beauty understood and assessed is it gendered in the same way um is it understood as something that is physical that is this singular thing that can be visualized um in cultures that have completely different like ontological traditions and that have different philosophical traditions about the body and so that's why i was looking at like pre-colonial uh yoruba um 
pre-Christian Ireland, at the Navajo, at Japan, Japanese philosophy and aesthetics is very interesting. Um, and just looking at how different philosophies of the body create different beauty cultures and what we might learn from ones that are like very different to our own. I think that is such an interesting point that and I think you know we see it don't we now sort of the conversations we have about making the beauty standard wider and more inclusive it is a change but also but I suppose the fact is that it's not what the standard is because that has changed and evolved and it's different it's that it exists and as you say that it the way it's sort of it's always used as a means of division and a means of disempowerment and it still proposes that our most like our value is most to be found mostly in our physical appearance mm. and I think that's so because it's also really grinds my gears onto a better expression whatever oh it's it's because of fashion magazines or oh it's because of films like no I think and I think it's a lot like the way we feel about our brains now but and the link is that when we feel that something is wrong my latest novel Limelight is about a young woman who is so desperate to be pretty and she hates herself for wanting to be pretty. She is furious with herself for failing to fit the standards that she feels obliged to meet. And I think that's why when we put our faith in something as ephemeral and shifting and nebulous as a beauty standard, it's like, well, people can always move the needle. You know, we need something outside that. Yeah, absolutely. The novel sounds great, by the way. I really want to read that. Yeah, I write about like the, the... The fragility. I'd seen that Toni Morrison had quite interesting things to say about beauty. She seems, and I have a quote from her in the book where um, she, I think it's from The Bluest Eye and she talks about going to the, the, the protagonist goes to the cinema and she's just like, this is where she got exposed to, to two of the most destructive ideas in, in humanity, romantic love and beauty. And I was like, oh, wow, who says that? And then she's like, both of them, both breeded like envy, jealousy and ended in. She's just like, I'm just like, she's critical of like the 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 concepts of these things that are, you know, seen as the kind of are held up on a pedestal mm. in our societies, romantic love and, 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 and physical, physical beauty. And then I dug more to, to find it, to find out more about Toni Morrison's, if she kind of expanded um, on beauty and I found like a really great interview from the Paris Review that I quote in the book and um, she is really skeptical oh also god she actually has said quite a lot about beauty but she spoke about like you know in the 1960s like the black is beautiful movement and she said like she understood it but she was just like are we back here again like is it is that what gives us our humanity that we're beautiful do we have to be perceived as beautiful to be perceived as human do we have to like um be legible to the white gaze as beautiful she's just like no like I resist like she's just like that's too fragile I've been in like environments where the way I look is like very close is is the beauty standard and I've been in environments where the way I look is far from the beauty standard and I have like seen the different ways that I'm treated in those different environments and I'm like my treatment or like my value as like a human being cannot be like given or withheld according to something like so 
like arbitrary mm-hmm. and so fragile. So the fact that like we're trying to aspire to beauty as the thing that gives us like protection and love and care and support and respect like to make all of that effort to get to to do something that is also so fragile ephemeral transient contingent can be taken away from you so easily that just can't be the the kind of like that kind of quicksand cannot be like the foundations that Mm. we're trying to you know build on and then I also say this from the perspective of like somebody that like really loves you can't necessarily tell this now but somebody who really loves makeup and who really loves like dressing up wearing like pretty dresses and stuff I'm not saying that I actually talk in the book about the processes of beautification um the processes of like making yourself look like attractive to other people things like desire there's nothing like inherently wrong with those things it's just that we like afford way too much, way too much like value on them. They're not the thing, it's not the thing that's like, you know, principally important about us. And we should, you know, really kind of try and shift our priorities. But at the same time, I kind of reject or I reject accusations that having an interest in beauty is like frivolous and like irrelevant. But I wish we could enjoy beauty more I feel like we should be able to enjoy those things they need to be liberated from the politics of envy comparison competition consumerism um and like I try and map out ways in which that could be done like in the book there's a book I adore and I think it's out of print but fairly available secondhand it's the penguin 20th century history of fashion writing and it's some journalism and a lot of excerpts from novels and it's about men and women and how dressing up in particular beauty rituals too but so often it's empowering it's a rite of passage it's also a little bit about ritual and mysticism ritual is so key yeah people get to kind of own themselves and express themselves through and I'm sure this is you explore this a lot in your writing as well that's why clothes and choice are so important and even and you know the book also has examples of kind of being I mean it comes up so much in Cold Comfort Farm which again is one of those books that feels like it could have been written yesterday and I think it and I always forget that it is set in a sort of mysterious it was written to be set in the future and the I can't remember her name but there's a woman who collects bras this idea that in this future, corsetry for women will sort of be seen, I think, as like barbaric and it'll be obsolete and <laughs> bras will be like curios, but also <laughs> Elphine and the sort of the arts and crafts. And she just wants to wear those sort of like floaty dresses and twirl and be free in the hills. And Flora makes her over and wants to kind of make her sleek. And I think Flora, with sort of her clothes and her hair, wants to empower her but there is that Pygmalion thing of kind of what will she lose in this transformation but again the sort the the magic of I can give you a whole new exciting identity clothes first and I think there's so much in literature that really celebrates that and still now when I when I dress like me and my friends have a sort of shared obsession with them any dress a black dress with a white collar um, see anything like that I can't walk past it in a shop I've owned at least four over the years because in <laughs> ballet shoes that's Pauline's 
audition have you dried ballet shoes no well for some for obscure reasons never needs a audition sort of general outfit to kind of to get your theatre license and impress everyone and Pauline the eldest fossil girl it's black velvet with a white collar and you know I'm 38 I'm never going to be cast as Alice in the pantomime and <laughs> still still buying that audition dress yeah I love like how when did you read it Oh my, for the first time, I think I would have been seven or eight. Yeah, I love those books that you read when you're so young and they just like still, you know, have this huge influence in your life. I feel like the aesthetics of Anne of Green Gables, like have just never, (laughs) have been such like a guiding, like a northern star throughout my life. I love in Anne of Green Gables when she takes Marilla's amethyst is it a ring or a necklace or a brooch that she loses I but that, that... I detail I just remember her dresses the house and the garden so I know that she Anne has never seen a diamond and reads about them and thinks that they must be the most fabulous things and it's just like a sort of you know white boring sparkling thing and when she sees an amethyst she's like oh that's exactly what I wanted a diamond to be yeah oh, that's cool <laughs> I don't remember that I need, I, yeah, I should revisit that. Oh, so do you still have, is it the, like, the puff sleeves? Yeah, and, like, I actually, I'm just looking at one of my rails and there are so many puff sleeves and taffeta. I don't know if there's taffeta in the book. There's, like, an image I have in, in my mind of... I feel like there would have been like taffeta. dresses for, like, the first time, right? Because she's, like, an orphan. Mm, yeah, if ever you want to collaborate on a book about the fashion in Anna Green Gables, please, <laughs> like, get in touch. I would love that. Perfect. I would love to know, is there anything that you are really excited about reading once you've handed in the PhD? I'm excited to like be able to just read, like there's so many books, like I just, I just, I would love to just like spend my days like reading novels. Gosh, off the top of my head, what do I want to read next? I I want to read The Fraud, Zadie Smith's new book. Oh, me too. I think I'm yeah. about to take that on holiday with me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Huge thanks to Emma. Disobedient Bodies is published by The Welcome Collection and out now. Your Book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and created by Dale Shaw and me, Daisy Buchanan. To see all the books Emma mentioned, go to acast.com slash booked and you can shop the selection on our page at bookshop.org. Find us and follow us on social media at whitebooked and if you're feeling especially generous, we would hugely appreciate a five-star review. As well as helping us, you could be helping a new listener find their new favourite book. We'll be back in your ears soon. For now, I leave you with this from Don DeLillo. Writing is a concentrated form of thinking. I don't know what I think about certain subjects, even today, until I sit down and try to write about them. See you next time. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.